Many end times views rely on a future millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus is reigning on a physical throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. But what are the implications of this belief? And more importantly, what does the Bible have to say about it? This is what we're going to dive into on today's episode of The Dance of Life. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host today. Thanks so much for being here with me. Appreciate you. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe, make sure you do, and do so through my website, danceoflife.com, using my no-hassle ha- no email list. And I say that because you never know when these platforms will censor people. And so, you know, we haven't gotten into anything super controversial yet on this show. Uh, but with this End Time series, we will be getting into some things that uh, probably will be controversial, and you never know. I would hate to lose touch with you, so make sure you go to danceoflife.com, enter your email there, and that way you get any new content that comes out. I don't spam people. It's just a way for us to keep in touch. But moving on, today we're talking about Jesus being king. This is the third in a series of the end times, so if you haven't had a chance to check out the previous episodes, please go check and listen to those or watch those because... This is designed to go in a sequential order, in a series, obviously. So you're going to get the most benefit out of listening to those podcasts or episodes. But we've, so far, just a brief review, we've talked about the five main end times views. We've kind of surveyed the landscape of eschatology. If you haven't heard that word before, eschatology just means study of the end times. Um, And then the last episode, we talked about the rapture, right? So rapture is a very popular teaching these days, but then we we looked at what the Bible really had to say about it. Things like, you know, Jesus' coming was a public and very visible, obvious event. There's no such thing as a secret rapture. Uh, There is a gathering together of the saints, of believers who are alive when Jesus arrives, but that's being done by the angels. It's not being done by Jesus himself. And many other things that just basically um, disprove the pre-tribulational view. And so in this episode, we're going to look at another very important topic within end time study. And if you recall from the first episode, the thing that divided, or I should say that divides the majority of end times views is the timing of the millennial kingdom or what is the millennial kingdom, right? So is it this future reign of Jesus on the earth for literally a thousand years? Uh, if so, how does that work with the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked? All these different timings that we know from end times texts, how do they time in with a literal reign of Jesus on earth? Now, that's a very big dividing line, but the big point is this. The assumption is that Jesus will be king, right? So this is the thing that it assumes, that Jesus is not king right now. He will be king in the future. And this is a very important theological point. If you believe that Jesus is not king right now, which is most pre Millennialism, dispensationalism, post-millennialism, most end times views believe this, unfortunately. (laughs) Unfortunately. And I say unfortunately, as you'll soon learn in this episode, why that's so unfortunate, because it costs some serious uh, price in your theology if you believe that. So that's what we're going to be getting into today, looking at what the Bible has to say about Jesus being king from the very beginning. Uh, He's ruling right now as king. And why that's important theologically. That's the most important part. Why that's important. Because believing that he is not king right now leads to some very serious error. And we're going to get into that. 
So if we can prove that Jesus is king right now, that will also help us to eliminate views like the pre-tribulational rapture, which again relies on this idea of a future millennial reign of Christ, right? It also helps us to start to detach from other views like premillennialism, even postmillennialism. So this is very important. It's a very important view. And if you recall from the first episode of this series, my goal isn't to help you identify with one view or another. I don't identify with any of the views. I think they all have something that they say that is true or useful, but they also have serious problems. And if you, again, if you haven't seen that first episode, go check out that first episode to see what the serious problems are with each view. So my goal with the series isn't to say, oh, you're an amillennialist now, or oh, you're a postmillennialist now. That's not my goal at all. My goal is to give you the tools to arm you biblically so that you can pull away from things that aren't supported by the Bible, from pulling away from teachings that aren't biblical, pulling away from things that will lead you astray one way or another. And that's really what it's about because the true biblical view or biblical understanding is always going to be nuanced, right? It's never going to be, oh, this is the one word that encapsulates all the truth. It just doesn't work that way. That's why I don't believe in denominations. I don't believe in having a particular end times label that you have. I mean, you have to just study and you have to eliminate the things one by one. And one big one is whether Jesus is king right now or in the future. That's what we're going to be looking at today in today's topic. So what are we going to be looking at today is the following. We're going to look at what the verses are about Jesus being king right from the beginning. We're going to look at the typology of kingship in the Bible. And this is a very important thing if you've studied typology. If you don't know what typology is really quick, it's just basically that the Bible has pictures that it shows of Jesus. And it shows those pictures through various things. For example, uh, Adam and Eve is a picture of Jesus and the church. And we're not, we're not going to get in breaking these down, but just, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of them in other topics, other series, but these are just some things to consider. Uh, Joseph, the Old Testament brother who basically was sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver and then ended up redeeming his family, he's a type for the Messiah. So there's a lot of typology in the Bible that basically creates these types and shadows of future realities through Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at the typology of kingship and how the whole kingship process was actually a type for the ministry of Jesus and his kingship. We're going to look at why Jesus must be king and priest at the same time. This is probably the biggest point of this episode, which is why if you deny that Jesus is king right now, the big cost is that you deny that he's also priest, meaning there's no intercessor for us. And so this is very important. We're going to look at the authority of Jesus as king right now, not in the future. We're going to see how Jesus was also a spiritual king before, just as he is now. Nothing has changed from the original design. And of course, the final thing we'll be looking at is the consequences of believing that Jesus is king in the future and not king right now. So let's jump into scripture. Let's just get right into it. I want to start with the first chapter of Luke, verses 31 through 33. And these are some verses about Jesus being king right in his arrival, right when he was first born and started his life here on earth, his human life. So Luke verse 31, chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. This is the Annunciation. And you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There shall be no end. So pretty obvious verse about Jesus being a king right from the beginning. If we jump to second chapter of Matthew verses one through two, the visit of the wise men. Just waiting for this sound. Sorry, if, you, if you're here, if you heard this like airplane over my house, then I apologize, but it's gone now. Anyway, chapter Mar, Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now there's a whole study by this. I'm going to pause right here really quick. There's a, First notice this, that they refer to Jesus, baby Jesus, as king, and that he deserves worship. So this is another proof text for the deity of Jesus, but it certainly shows that people thought that he was the king from his birth. Now, there's a study by Michael Heiser, which we will get into in a future podcast, a future episode within this series, Um about the birth of Jesus and the timing of the birth of Jesus. And there's a whole, I'm not going to break out everything astrologically that's referenced also in the book of Revelation. Believe it or not, there's a lot of interesting study on that, astronomical study and on certain signs. Even though the book of Revelation, for example, the the woman with the 12 stars and um, you know that whole vision, and I believe Revelation 12 is talking about the church and the whole sojourn of the church after the cross. It is also referring, which is super fascinating, but again, Michael Heiser soon, he's since passed away, unfortunately, but awesome man. I mean, he's just studied the Old Testament so much. I don't agree with absolutely everything he says, but he is one of the the foremost Old Testament scholars of our time. And of course he's passed away now, but a lot of contribution from that man. And there's a great podcast and, and study that he does on the birth of Jesus and how one of the signs in Jesus's birth that the, that attract, this is what they're talking about here. That's why I'm kind of beating around the bush, but I'm going to get to the point when they say, where is he who has been born King of the Jews for we saw his star. This is actually a reference to something much deeper. It's not just like, Oh, they, they saw just a star in the sky. There's a very specific star that they saw that was related to Kings and kingship. I don't remember the name of it, it's like a lion or Regnus or I forget the name of the Regus maybe, but it was a, it was a King star. So anyway, we'll talk about that at some point in the future, but the point is that this is a specific reference. So not only did they believe he was King from his birth, but it was already written in the stars. There's a whole study on this and how the birth of Jesus was in fact predicted and shown in the stars. I'm not talking about astrology. I'm not talking about Babylonian astrology, but people did study the stars and God did declare the heavens for timekeeping and for signs and for navigation and for other things. Right. And so ultimately these three wise men came to Bethlehem because they recognized certain signs in the sky. And those signs specifically spoke about a King. That's the thing that I'm trying to say. And that's really important, but let's move on to John uh, first chapter of John verse 49 through 50. This is Jesus talking to Nathanael 
and he picks him out. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Jesus saw Nathaniel by the fig tree. And basically, obviously, Jesus is God. He's omniscient. He knows Nathaniel. He knitted him in his mother's womb. And so he called him out. And Nathaniel, in response, calls him the king of Israel. That's really important. Now let's look at the triumphal entry. Triumphal entry is when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And there's a lot of important telling things that happened in that episode that we can look at. So if we go to Matthew 21, verses 15 through 16. But when the when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were ignorant. And they said, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never heard? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, have you prepared praise? And so he didn't rebuke people when they were calling out to him, naming him the son of David. Now there's parallel verses to this, of course, that they give even a, a deeper dimension. So if we look into John verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 13, so he took branches, this is the triumphal entry. They took branches of palm trees and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So this is very important. Now, if we look at another parallel verse, Luke 19, verse 38, they, they were doing the same thing. They were gathering around. They're saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So, a couple things. Okay, first off, these accounts from, from the Gospels prove that people were already seeing Jesus as king, as the king that would fulfill all the prophecies at that time. Now, that's another point is that this prophecy cannot be fulfilled. That's why this whole... Jewish Messiah that's supposedly coming up in Israel right now, the Yanaka, the, the prophecies have already been fulfilled, right? So what prophecy is that? Well, it's in Zechariah where he's riding on a colt, and that's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the coming king of Zion. This is the prophecy that people were referencing, that they recognized. Remember, people were studying the Bible way more than we are today. They knew, they knew it by heart. And so when they... We're saying something like this, like Hosanna, son of David, or king of Israel. They were referencing these texts. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, what does it say? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, that's about as specific as you can get. And Jesus fulfilled that. And the gate that Jesus walked through is shut up at the present time. So that's not happening anymore. This has already been fulfilled. The Jewish Messiah lived and died 2,000 years ago. His name was Jesus Christ. So, but anyway, the point is, is that these people thought that Jesus was king. Well, not king in the future, not that he will be king, but that he was already king. He's inheriting the throne through his existence as a human being. Let's jump to John chapter 18, where Jesus is on trial. And this parallels a lot of these things. So Pilate says to him, so you are, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what can we take from all of these together? 
the triumphal entry and, and the trial before Pilate. Well, both the Jews and the Gentiles thought that he was king, and he didn't rebuke them. When they asked, like, are you a king? You are a king? Or they called him a king? He didn't rebuke them. He didn't say, no, 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 I, I'm not king yet. I'll be king, you know, thousands of years from now. Not not yet. He didn't rebuke them, right? He owned that that title, that experience. So the question is, do you believe Jesus' words that he is king or somebody else's? That's something to ask yourself right now. But many, uh, many pre- and post-millennialists believe that these verses show, this is very important, okay, that Jesus was supposed to be king. He was intended to be king at his first coming, but the Jews rejected him, so this is why he's going to be king in the millennial reign of the future. This is a very important, this is a very, very important point to get, so I'll repeat it again. Some pre- and post-millennialists, mostly pre-millennialists, I believe dispensationalism. Again, there's a lot of things that can cross over. So I'm not saying this is what these people believe. I'm just saying this is generally this area, right? Pre and post, because they rely on a millennial kingdom in the future. Some people hold to this view. So I'm going to repeat this view again. They believe that Jesus was intended to be king, as shown by these verses that I just pulled up for you. But because he was rejected by the Jews, he has to be king in the future, in the millennial reign where he's reigning for a thousand years or a long period of time. So what implications does that have if, well, first off, is that even aligned with the Bible? We should ask that question. What does the Bible say? And what the Bible says is that the cross was predestined. If we jump to Acts chapter 4, verse 26 to 28, great passage to memorize. Put it in your memory. Verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is so, so important. This is like one of the most anchoring verses that you can remember. Because if the cross was predestined, there's a lot of other things that you can understand just from these short verses. But one of them is that Jesus was predestined to die on the cross. There was there was no like, oh, he came, he came to be king, but because the Jews rejected him, gosh, you know, I guess God had to change his plans. So that's not aligned with the Bible. The cross was predestined. To believe that because the Jews rejected him, God had to change his plans is nonsense. If the Jews had accepted Jesus, we would still be under the sacrificial system. There would be no change of the law. There would be no change of the priesthood. There would be no atonement for sins. There would be no grace. Think about that. Think about the implications of that idea. So that's total nonsense. To believe that because the Jews rejected Jesus, God altered his plans is nonsense. Why? Because the cross was predestined. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that means that before the world was created, this whole plan was already set in motion. God the Father had already planned this to take place and to give a people to Christ that would be redeemed and that would require his blood. And Christ, out of the joy that was set before him, 
right? Not the joy of being nailed to a cross, but the joy of redeeming the people that God the Father selected for him. That's what the Bible teaches. It's all been predestined. Now, look, this is very controversial. We're not going to get super into it. There's a whole series I've made on that devoted to exploring these kind of topics. But the point is, is that this idea that God changes his plans in response to human behavior, this is nonsense. God doesn't alter his plans based on what we do. Okay, so that has to be rejected. So, again, did God make a mistake? You know, did, did if God is omniscient, did he not foresee the Jews rejecting him? Maybe the Jews were chosen because they would reject him. You ever think about that? That was the whole point, is creating the context so that the Gentiles could be, meaning the nations, could be, could be redeemed and included. Remember this principle that we talked about in the very first episode. We're going to re- rehash it over and over again. The, f- the physical comes before the spiritual. Okay, there's a verse in Corinthians we're going to support that with, but the physical comes from the, I'm sorry, the physical comes before the spiritual. This is the whole point behind typology. Israel was a physical reality. It had a physical people, had a physical set of laws and structures and things that they did, but it was a foreshadowing of a greater reality and relationship through Jesus, through the church. I'm not talking about an institution. I'm talking about the body of Christ, the body of believers, people who believe in Jesus, who are genuine believers. That's the body of Christ. That's the fellowship that we have. That is the new Israel. And whether, and here's the thing, whether you agree with that or not, that's not the thing at issue. The issue is, is Jesus king or not right now? Because if Jesus is king right now, then the whole idea of dispensationalism with Israel having a separate plan of redemption and Jesus reigning for a thousand years, that goes out the window. Another reason for that to be thrown out the window. And it should be, I'm sorry, because ultimately it teaches so many contrary things to the gospel. And we talked about that in the first episode. But either way, you know, if you believe in that, it's, you know, I'm not condemning you. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not trashing people who believe that. It's a different thing to look at somebody's ideas than to look at somebody's person. I believe that Jesus was going to be king in the future for a while. That was my main end times view. I believed in premillennialism. It's a very popular view. But then I realized like, wow, if I believe that Jesus is king in the future, what does that mean? What am I saying? I'm, I'm rejecting scripture and I'm lowering Jesus's status, which is what we're going to get into in a little bit. So the point is that people thought Jesus was king at his first coming. It was very clear. And Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. People recognized that. His apostles, random citizens on the street, even Pontius Pilate. He was he had a title over his cross as a king of the Jews. I mean, it was very clear that people thought of him as a king, first in the beginning in a good way, and then as a way to mock him. But either way, the kingship was part of his life. Now, I want to look at shadows and types of kingship throughout the Bible. And specifically, I want to look at the three stages of kingship. Now, that verse I was talking about earlier, which is the physical, then the spiritual, that's from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. And we'll just read it. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. And this, he was just, this is a whole great chapter in general. I mean, Corinthians is an excellent letter, but Right before that, in verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Remember how we talked about 
typology and, and one of the examples they gave you was Adam. And this is exactly one of the places where it's from in Corinthians, where there's an obvious parallel being made between the first Adam and the last Adam, the spiritual Adam, which is Jesus Christ. And you know, if you look at, for example, the first Adam was physical. And of course, Jesus was a physical being too, but physically, Eve came from Adam's rib, right? And so if you look at the church, Jesus was wounded. They speared him right through his rib and into his heart on the cross. And that wound is what poured out the blood, which ultimately saves us all through the church. Now, the church, again, is not an institution. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's not a denomination. That's a big error, too. It is the body of believers. And so the church was made from the wound in the side. So that's that's a fascinating typology. But there's a lot of things like this throughout the Old Testament. Typology in and of itself is one of those studies that, like I said in the very beginning of this series, you shouldn't ignore. You know, studying end times is fun. It's certainly, there's you know, a lot of stuff happening these days. But look, the thing is, don't let these things consume you. That's my goal with this series, is to give you just enough. Give you. We're going to do some really deep studies in this series, but I, I want to give you enough to where you can either accept or reject a view, that you don't have to like spend days and days and days and worry yourself over all these different details because ultimately there's a lot of other things to study, like typology. Typology, everybody should be studying typology, how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. There's dozens, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of typologies and shadows for Jesus's life and ministry throughout the Old Testament. And that's something that will only give you a greater appreciation for the Bible and for Jesus, which is very important. But the three stages of kingship are outlined by Michael Heiser, again, the Old, Old Testament scholar. He does a fantastic job of, of reporting on these. And I'm going to quote from a podcast that he did. We'll, we'll jump to it in just a second. But the three stages of kingship are designation, demonstration, and coronation. So we're going to look at each of those. But let's jump to this podcast. It's a transcript from the Naked Bible podcast that he does. And again, Michael Heiser's now passed away. Unfortunately, I believe he had like a, a type of very aggressive cancer. But the Naked Bible podcast he did, such a great resource. So many wonderful podcasts that he's done. And, and this one in particular, this is episode 333. And it's titled The Israelite King and Jesus as King. And it's July 19th, 2020. And so, you know, this, you can listen to it. Obviously, it's it's easier to listen to it, but I want to jump to a section. This is the transcript. And we're just going to jump, jump to a couple sections here really quick. So it says this, in ancient Judaism, there's evidence that there would, that would be kings engaged in a three-part pattern of accession before they ascended to the throne. These royal candidates would be anointed by a prophet, prove themselves through some sort of a feat, like a battle, and then finally receive an official coronation. This particular Jewish ideal, deeply rooted in its Old Testament narratives and in ancient Near Eastern thought, is evident in the gospel narratives of Christ's life. This article examines the presence of this ancient idea of tripartite pattern, as in three, three parts or three steps, for kingly accession in the life of Christ. After presenting the pattern in its Old Testament context, it finds the same pattern in the New Testament record of Christ's life. And there's another segment here 
1981, Baruch Halpern introduced evidence of an ancient Jewish expectation that its leaders were to engage in distinct stages of progress as they accessed the positions of kingship. First, there was to be an anointing of some kind or a designation of the of the uh, potential leader. And then, this is, uh, I just jumped here. Okay. okay, second, there was to be a demonstration of his ability as a warrior and ruler, a proof of his worthiness to be king. And finally, there was to be a coronation following this demonstration, permanently and charismatically confirming him as the rightful ruler. So this is this is really profound. And there's there's obviously a lot of ba- biblical basis in this, and there's a lot of cultural basis in the ancient Near East for this, these three stages. Now, if we look at these three stages in the life of Jesus, the first stage was designation, where you always had a king to be anointed. That was the first stage. And how did that happen to Jesus? Well, baptism. When Jesus was baptized, that was his anointing. John the Baptist was the last prophet, basically. And John the Baptist was the one who prepared the way. He anointed Jesus. And what happened at the baptism? Well, the heavens parted and you had the entire Trinity present and you had the testimony of two witnesses. Keep that in mind because we're going to get back to this at a future point when we talk about the two witnesses. But you had two witnesses. You had Holy Spirit and you had God the Father testifying of Jesus's greatness, of who Jesus was. So you had the anointing. And what happened right after the designation? Well, you had demonstration. That's the second step where the potential king had to go and prove his, you know, um, capabilities in warfare. Well, Jesus, right after his baptism, immediately went into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and to basically combat the devil and begin fighting evil. And he resisted and obviously became victorious over that. And throughout his ministry from that point on, what was he doing? He was healing people, casting out demons, showing his authority over all things, over the elements, over demons, over life and death. He was proving himself through demonstration. So we have a robust evidence of that throughout the gospel narratives. And of course, then the final stage of that is the coronation. When did the coronation happen? Well, it happened at the crucifixion. The crucifixion is the physical before the spiritual. The crucifixion represents the coronation. Now, from the people who were doing the crucifying, from their perspective, yeah, they were mocking him, but God uses all things for the good. Jesus was being crowned king over death and over sin. He destroyed sin. He destroyed death through his crucifixion. And even though they were mocking him, they were still fulfilling the prophecy for Christ's life. The thorns in the crown of thorns were always associated with sin in the Bible. If you remember, one of the main aspects of the Genesis curse was what? Thorns and thistles to grow from the ground. And so that is a reminder of sin. And so for Jesus to be crowned with a crown of thorns, to be made sin for us, he who knew no sin, so that he could take our punishment in his place, that is the coronation ceremony, is that his physical type, which is the humiliating coronation that he went through, that actually is a physical fulfillment of something spiritual that happened next when he resurrected and ascended. What happened next? Well, 
We'll get into that. But it's, it's a scene in Daniel 7, in chapter 7 in Daniel, in the Old Testament, talking about the Son of Man coming and receiving his throne from the Father. And we'll look at that in just a second. But I want you to see how the three stages of coronation of, of kingship apply to Jesus' life. I mean, it's, it's too many examples to rule out, right? So you have the designation, very clear designation at the baptism, very clear demonstration through the wilderness, fighting Satan in the wilderness, and then, you know, destroying Satan's kingdom and hold, and hold on people through his ministry. And then you had the coronation, which is where you had him crucified with the crown of thorns, with the king of the Jews over his head. He was crowned king over sin and death. He destroyed sin and death through his crucifixion. And of course, when he resurrected, and finally when he ascended, what happened then? Well, we're going to get into that through this whole series. But one of the things that's very important to remember is that in Daniel chapter 7, there's a vivid scene of, of this idea of the Messiah being crowned king. And the question is, when did this happen? Right? So pre, and we'll, let's, let's jump into the verse and then we'll, we'll jump into the rest of it. This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. The Son of Man is given dominion. Son of Man in and of itself is a very interesting um, title. that we'll, We won't get too much into it here, but it has both human and divine qualities that it's used in the context of. So this is talking about a person. Very interesting. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven were, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Keep in mind this imagery. With the clouds of heaven, there come one like a son of man. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is a scene that sort of interrupts Daniel's vision of the four beasts, which we'll be, we'll be getting into these in future episodes. But this particular scene relates to what we're talking about now. Because this scene, obviously there is the Ancient of Days, it's God the Father, on the throne. And then one like a son of man on the clouds of heaven. Now, flying on the clouds is something that's consistently attributed only to God. This is very important. Jesus also said, when he was on trial with the Pharisees, and you know they basically said, "Are you, are you the Son of God?" And he said, "Yeah, you will see the Son of Man on the clouds, coming on the clouds of heaven." So he was referencing this particular vision of Daniel, and this is why the high priest tore their clothes, and you know they accused him of blasphemy, and they basically, you know, you know the rest of the story. But this is the scene that he was talking about. So the question is, what is the timing of this scene? Pre- and post-millennialists believe that this happens right before the second coming. So Jesus appears before God, receives the kingdom, or gets crowned, basically, and then comes back and rules for a thousand years, or a longer period of time. That's what pre- and post-millennialism and dispensationalism believes. But... I challenge you to look at this differently given everything that we've reviewed so far. You, we looked at the, the triumphal entry. Okay, we looked at the, 
the passion as a type of the coronation. We looked at the different designations, uh, the, the, the different stages of Christ's life of kingship. We looked at designation, demonstration, coronation. After the ascension is when Christ ascended and went into heaven and presented before God the Father, and he sat at his right hand. And we're going to look more into this, but the timing is very clear based on what the Bible says, that Jesus sat at the right hand of God as soon as he ascended. And so if we look at, for example, Revelation 3, verse 21, this is Jesus talking. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, just as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, Revelation, there's debate on when Revelation was given. Some people say it was around 60 AD. Some people say it was around 90 AD. That part doesn't matter for our purposes here. What matters is this is way in the past. Not whether it was 90 AD or 780, that's, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. And the text is in the past tense. So what did Jesus say? I have also conquered past tense and sat down past tense with my father on his throne. So this is a very telling verse that Jesus conquering and sitting down with the father in a kingly position already happened in the past. And the most presumable logical place, we'll get more into it, is the ascension, right after the ascension. So the timing of Daniel 7, the the vision of Daniel seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds, presenting before the Ancient of Days, is not right before the second coming. It is right after the ascension. Christ ascended into heaven. To, you know, he glorious, he conquered, conquered death, conquered sin. And again, the physical, then the spiritual, right? The physical was a mockery of kingship. That was a foreshadowing. And the spiritual was when he raised and went into heaven. He ascended. That is the final reality where he truly became king and was crowned king of all things in a spiritual dimension. And so this is very important because the vision that Daniel saw in chapter 7 does not happen in the future. It's already been fulfilled. And hopefully as we go on through this series as through this episode, you'll see that that's the case. Now why this makes sense is because well, he had to first be in heaven to be crowned king, right? Now, we know Jesus is one with the Father. He said so himself. He also says that he, the Psalms say that he has to rule with his enemy until his enemies are under his feet and then become his footstool. Then at that point, Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father so that God can be all in all. And the verse that we have for reference for that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28. And that's very clear. Let's jump to it. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This is quoting Psalm 110. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is verse 26. Now, we're going to pause here for just a second. Consider this, and we talked about this in the rapture episode. If the last, we know that when Jesus arrives, everybody's getting resurrected. The people who did good things, the people who are bad, they're all getting resurrected when Jesus arrives. 
That's how, and that's how death is being conquered through the resurrection. Because the people who are left alive and the people who are resurrected, everybody gets a new body if you're in Christ. If you are wicked and you're not in Christ on that point in time, then you get resurrected to the lake of fire. But if you're a believer, you get resurrected to a new body. What does that mean? That means a body that doesn't die. The death is being destroyed at the second coming. Now ask yourself this, if death is being destroyed at the second coming by the resurrection, okay, and death is the last enemy to be destroyed before, that's it, before eternity, then the millennial reign cannot be in the future because the millennial reign supposes that he has to reign to put his enemies under his feet. He has to rule in the midst of his enemies. That's what Psalm 10, sorry, 110 says that he has to rule in the midst of his enemies while the, the father puts his enemies as his footstool. So that can't happen if death being the last enemy has already been destroyed at the resurrection. Think about that. doesn't make any sense. At least doesn't make any sense if you hold to a future reign of Christ. But if you hold to the correct view, which is that Jesus has been ruling and reigning as king ever since his ascension, that's what the Bible teaches, then he is reigning while his enemies are amidst him and, and reigning until death will be the last enemy, which is at his second coming, when everybody's resurrected and transformed. And he's putting his enemies as his footstool. Eventually, everybody will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. So that's the whole point, that that's happening right now, not sometime in the future. And again, think about that. How would that even work if we know the second coming comes after the mark of the beast, after God's wrath is poured out, after justice has been served, all the wicked have been destroyed. What enemies are left for there to be a millennial reign? doesn't make any sense. We'll get more into these topics in a much deeper way in future episodes in this series, but this was just a little tangent that we had to go on. But anyway, go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and this is verse 27 now. This is right after the last enemy to be to be destroyed is death. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So what is this really painting a picture of? When Jesus comes back, it's done. It's a done deal. Death will be destroyed. Eternity is ushered in after the judgment so that the Trinity, the triune God, Yahweh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will live and exist in Christ and reign on earth. But it's not going to be a millennial reign. It's We're going to have a new Jerusalem. We will have new bodies. We will have an eternity. But God will be all in all. And that's that's what this is painting a picture of. It is the Trinity embodied I mean, it's, it's a crazy thought. <clears throat> it's wild to think that we'll be in the presence of the triune God physically. Pretty crazy. But that's what's really happening here. And this, again, the point here is, it's not so much of that stuff. The point is that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that, what that means is you cannot have a future millennial reign because the last enemy gets destroyed upon the second coming of Christ. And that means that he has already been reigning to put his enemies under his feet because death is the last enemy. 
So another couple things I want to look at are some messianic prophecies. And of course, there's a lot of messianic prophecies, but there's specifically one that I want to look at, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. It's about Solomon, but a lot of people recognize that this also more fully applies to Christ. So let's let's take a look at it. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's talking to David now, but again, this is kind of talking about Solomon, but more fully about Christ. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if we look at Psalms 89 and 132, so let's jump to, to 89 and uh, first, and we'll compare to what we just read. Verse 3 He says, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant, to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And again, in Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So David very obviously treated that as a messianic prophecy even though it was talking about Solomon in some respects. Solomon built the temple, right? But obviously Solomon failed. Solomon was a type. All the kings were types for the future Christ, for the future king, for the real future king. All the kings were types. But the the point about types, which is very important to understand, is that types always fall short of the thing that they are typifying right? So in this case, all the kings are typifying Jesus, but they fall short, right? Solomon ended up, you know, listening to his many wives and worshiping demons. Obviously, Saul was a human being and he was a sinner. Jesus was sinless. And so there's a lot of ways that they fall short, but they point to Jesus in many ways. I mean, Saul, or sorry, Solomon built the temple. Jesus built the church. And we're going to get into that whole thing in a future episode as well. But there's a lot of parallels there. And G- and David recognized that these things were messianic words that God was giving him, not just talking about Solomon. So it's very clear from Psalms 89, 132, and other Psalms where David quotes God, what God said to him in 2 Samuel, as messianic. So the very important thing is this. If we look now in Psalm 110, where these messianic prophecies have quoted a lot in previous places about ruling in the midst of your enemies, there's something very important there that is our next topic, which is about being a priest and king at the same time. So Psalm 110, let's go through one verses one through four. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Talking about while he's reigning, his enemies are also being made his footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So his rule has to be in the midst of his enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, 
the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't know, Melchizedek was a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. Some people say he was a pre-incarnate version of Christ, kind of like the angel of the Lord. Some people say he was actually a king and priest of Jerusalem, but details about his life were very obscure in the sense that there's not that many details written in the Bible, and that's by design so that he could he could serve as a type for the future reality in Christ, where Christ is the perfect king and priest. So Melchizedek is an interesting study. There's a lot of typology there. A lot of people have broken that down. So if you're interested in it, I would highly recommend looking into that. It's a very fascinating study. I'm not, I don't know whether that was a pre-incarnate version of Christ or a real king. I'm, I'm inclined to believe that Melchizedek was an actual king and priest of Jerusalem. It doesn't matter because in the end, it's a typology. We're looking at the type. And the type is that the future Messiah, the Son of God, the King, is also a priest. He serves dual functions at the same time. This is a critical thing, right? So all the messianic prophecies and all the messianic things that point to Jesus, that David wrote, it's very clear that he would be a king, but also a priest. This is super, super important. And Jews still struggle with this today. In fact, they, they believe in two messiahs. They believe in the Ben Joseph and the Ben David messiah. One that will suffer, one that will conquer. They never understood that all those different messianic prophecies and seemingly contradictory things were actually talking about the same person. Remember when I said the son of man is an interesting study where sometimes it's used as this very humble sort of lowly figure, but then there's also a lot of verses about the Son of Man being a deity and receiving worship and, and sort of this conquering picture. And so Jews really struggled with that. And today they still do because they're they're seeing these as two separate things rather than being one one person. And that was fulfilled in Christ. That's the beauty of Jesus's life, that he was both a lowly, humble servant and yet also God incarnate. So Crazy stuff to think about. But the the conclusion is, a couple of conclusions. Number one, that he has to be king and priest at the same time. And the second conclusion is that when Jesus sits at the right hand, that's when he becomes king. That's what these Psalms are telling us. When Jesus sits at the right hand of the power, the right hand of the Father, that's when he becomes king. Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. You must rule in the midst of your enemies. So when Jesus sits at the right hand, if we can pinpoint that time with accuracy, then we know when Jesus' kingship officially began. Okay, so let's let's try to endeavor to prove that. So when did Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father? Well, if we jump to Acts chapter 2, verses 30, we're going to go all the way through 36. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and he says some interesting things. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Talking about David now, calling David a prophet and and referring to all these messianic prophecies. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up and that we are, are all witnesses of. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, there it is, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter is referencing these Psalms that we just looked at, like Psalm 110. And he's saying, listen, this has been fulfilled. This is this Jesus is the one who raised from the dead, who, who David was prophesying about, that you wouldn't let your Holy One see corruption. This Jesus is the one who's been made Lord, as in King, and Christ, anointed one. So very important they, that the apostles saw what David saw, what the people saw, that Jesus was king. And when was that happening? When Jesus sat at the right hand. When did Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father? Well, we're going to find out. But I bet you, you already know. Now, one Psalm 110 is quoted in this, but he also quotes Psalm 16. So let's jump to that really quick. This is verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is what uh, Peter was quoting back in his sermon. Now, this is all wrapped up nice and neatly in some of the letters that we see in the New Testament. If we look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 23, it's again, all these things are confirmed by the different letters, and we're going to look at each of them, especially also Revelation. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, it goes like this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So when did Christ sit at the right hand? After he was raised from the dead. That's the key. And we know that happened at the ascension. But let's look in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is the same thing that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He was resurrected. Let's, let's make a quick summary. Jesus was resurrected. He ascended to heaven. He sat at the right hand. He's been put above all authority and power. How do you interpret that? Other than fulfilling Daniel 7, coming before the Ancient of Days, after his ascension, receiving all authority and power and rule, and sitting at the right hand, which is a kingly authority. So, Moving on, though, look at Hebrews verses one, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. The supremacy of God's Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Great text for the deity of Jesus, by the way, but what do you take from this? Again, the same timing. There's no disagreement. After making, look at verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When is the timing of him sitting at the right hand? According to the Messianic Psalms, that's when he would be king. Well, the same as Ephesians, the same as Peter, the same as everybody's saying, which is after he made purification for sins. After his crucifixion, he was raised from the dead. Then a few weeks later, he ascended, and that's when everything was official. So the timing is after the ascension, not in thousands of years after the crucifixion. But again, let's review Revelation 3, verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That has even more meaning now after everything we've talked about. Now, remember that it's referencing Daniel 7. This is why this is why these Pharisees tore their clothes. Let's jump to that scene. This is in Matthew 26, chapter 26, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. This, the reason they were, they were so upset and thought this was blasphemy is because he was directly referencing the scene in Daniel 7 where the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, which is a deity reserved only for Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who rides on the clouds. The deity that the Son of Man presents before the Ancient of Days receives all authority and rule and kingdom and power. And so he was referencing that. Now, ask yourself this. Was Jesus referencing that in response to them asking him if he's the Son of God, if he's the Christ? If he was he referencing that as a way of saying, "Well, I will be." This was, this is going to happen in thousands of years from now. Or was he referencing that and saying, "Yeah, you will, you will see me. I'm going to ascend, and I will become." You just watch, <laughs> watch what's going to happen in a couple of days, a couple of weeks, right? Much more sense, especially given the fact that all the previous verses we read, like Ephesians and Peter and Hebrews, which were written after the ascension all talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand as a done deal. It's already been done. Past tense. So put one and one together. What do you get? Well, you get the fact that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and started ruling after the ascension. He ascended into heaven, took his seat, and he received all authority and kingdom and power. So that means that a future millennial reign where he's sitting physically on a physical throne in Jerusalem and reigning for a thousand literal years is not correct. There must be more to the story. And that's the whole point of unpacking these one at a time, because there's a lot of things that go into believing the timing of the millennial kingdom. 
But if you believe that the millennial kingdom is not a literal time period of a thousand years, it's a metaphorical time period, millennium as in a long period. And we're going to unpack why it could be metaphorical and not literal. And if you believe that it's a spiritual reigning of Jesus, then that makes sense with what the Bible says, very much so. But if you believe that there's a physical reign that has to happen, it's not in alignment with what the Bible is talking about. So the conclusion is that Jesus took his seat, kingly seat, after his ascension. And he's seated currently at the right hand of power. He is king. Jesus is king. Not he will be, he is. And remember, very, very important point. If you take away one thing from this entire episode, take away the fact that he has to be king and priest at the same time. Remember, priest by the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah, the Son of Man, the future king is also a priest. Jesus has to have both king and priest title at the same time. But let's look at how that shapes up. If we go back to Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord has sworn and you are going to be a priest you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a mysterious figure in the Old Testament that, again, the details are left. There's not a lot of details. The details are left out. In order to create a type for, a, for an immortal, forever priest and king type figure. That was the whole point. I'm of the mind that Melchizedek was probably an actual king but that details weren't really included about his life so that the type, you know, when you say the name Melchizedek, oh, we know Melchizedek is very mysterious, possibly immortal. That's the whole point is creating that type for the future reality in Christ. But that future reality, in order for it to fulfill the type, has to be both king and priest at the same time. And this is right here the most important part of this whole episode. If... Jesus is future king, then that means he's not priest right now. And what that means is that there's no intercession for sins between us and God. You do not have the plan of salvation if you don't have, if you don't have Jesus as priest. When Jesus ascended into heaven and took his seat at the right hand, he didn't just become king. He became the perfect and eternal immortal priest that we have interceding for us constantly so that we can have this relationship with God, so we can pray to God at any point in time without having to, you know, cleanse ourselves or offer sacrifices or all these things that people had to do in the past. We can do that because Jesus is priest. And if you believe that Jesus is priest, which you should because that's what the gospel teaches, then by implication, he also has to be king. Never mind all the verses that we just saw. But if you just went solely from the priestly route, he has to also be king. Now, Zechariah chapter 6 confirms this. And again, this is one of those things where it's a shadow. And if you don't understand typology, if you don't see how these things are fulfilled in Christ, which the Jews of today still do not, it leads you into error. Why? Because you're looking at the physical things rather than seeing the physical as a shadow for the spiritual. 
which is what Corinthians talks about and which we will talk about over and over and over again. Remember one of the main errors with dispensationalism, that they look at physical, literal realities rather than seeing the spiritual typological realities that the Bible is painting constantly. But let's look at Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, because this is also messianic. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now there's a lot of lot that goes into this. First off, it's obvious that while there's a king, there's also a priest. That's the big takeaway, right? So this is this is a pretty universal idea about the the Messiah, the the one who will rule. That he is also a priest and a king. Now, it seems if you just read this verse alone without any context whatsoever, let's say you never read the Bible and you read just this verse, you would think these are two people. And this is exactly what happens when you read it read it too literally and without context and without understanding for typological things. But obviously from the greater picture of scripture, we understand just like there's a suffering Messiah and a conquering Messiah, there's one person that fulfills both of those. You have Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that talk about a suffering servant. You have the son of man. Again, there's a whole study on this, but the son of man could be, it's used in a very you know humble way, very humiliating way to show Jesus's humanness. And it's also used in a conquering way. So you have these dualities. They're very interesting. They both show different sides of the same person. And that's the same thing that's happening in Zechariah 6, verse 13. It's not two people. It's not a king and a priest. It's the same person who's a king and a priest at the same time. So this is very important. Now, the Jews today, again, are looking for fulfilling this in two people. And even people who believe in dispensationalism are trying to pick out the two people who are going to fulfill this so that the, the literal futurist interpretation of the Bible can come true and the rapture can happen. So they're looking at, you know, Bibi Netanyahu as being the king and then this Yannicka guy being, you know, maybe the the priestly role or the Ben Joseph and Ben David, whatever, right? But again, if you understand what the Bible clearly speaks about, which is talking about one person, and that's Jesus. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus. He's the star of the show. The, the law and the prophets testify about him. I mean, God has given us a rich, rich story. Every chapter in the Bible has something to point towards Jesus in some way. And that's an adventure. That's the fun part about typology is really seeing, wow, how much of the Bible points to Christ. And then once you get to the, to the New Testament, it's like, wow, all those things have so much more meaning. The triumphal entry, people calling him the son of David, Jesus referring himself to the son of, as of the son of man, or even with the Pharisees when he said he's, you're going to see him on the clouds of heaven and making that reference. Like you understand all those things so much better. That's why I love typology. But it's really important that this is one person and that person fulfills both of those roles simultaneously. And if we look at a couple of verses that support this, starting in Hebrews, and Hebrews is Hebrews is probably one of the best places to go for this because it is a hall of typology. And it, it's a great book in general to look at how the Old Testament pre-shadows or prefigures Christ. But in chapter two, 
Verse 17. Let's start with that. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus had to be made like us so that he could be a high priest. Not just a priest, but the high priest. And if you know about the Old Testament laws and sacrifices, what that looked looked like, you'll see all the foreshadowing and typology of the sanctuary. We're going to talk about this in future episodes. The sanctuary, sanctuary services, the sacrifices, um, you know, the high priestly role it's, itself, the the clothing that the high priest would wear. I mean, it's it's all pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that's the fascinating thing. But moving on, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become, past tense, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There it is again. Obviously referencing those previous Psalms, because this is written to the Hebrews. The whole reason why Hebrews is such a great resource for comparing Old Testament typology to the New Testament is because Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. It was written to people who were on the fence and weren't sure about this Jesus guy. And the author of Hebrews is like pulling from the Old Testament over and over again to be like, look, no, this is legit. (laughs) You can believe because this is the Messiah. And he gives typology after typology and shows how Jesus fulfilled. So that's why Hebrews is such a great resource for things like this because of the audience and why it was written. But let's keep going. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Which, by the way, just a very important side note, this is a proof for eternal security. Okay, there's a whole series I did on this, and ultimately, it shouldn't be a controversial thing, but apparently it is to have eternal security in your faith as a believer, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is eternal security. To believe that you can lose your salvation when the Bible says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, as if, you know, providing that adjective just so you know for sure, Jesus can save to the uttermost everybody who draws near to God because he lives forever. Those are some pretty strong and specific words that you have security in your salvation as a believer, that God is doing the work. But anyway, that's another tangent. It's just, for some reason, unfortunately, there's a lot of division on this whole topic of being able to lose your salvation. It's not biblical to believe that you can lose your salvation. If you are a genuine believer, God will sustain you, even through very rocky times. And I know that you believe that because God has sustained you through rocky times. It's like he sustained me and everybody else. And people who fall away, we don't know if they're going to come back, number one. And number two, if they die in their sins, well, your actions and things that you do or say do not make you a believer. It's your relationship with Jesus that makes you a believer. Judas was destined to betray Christ. Judas was never saved to begin with. He was destined to betray Christ. But did Judas work miracles? Absolutely. He was part of the 12 that went out into the world and did various miracles during Jesus' ministry. This is why many will knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, do we not do any mighty works in your name? 
Well, your mighty works don't mean that you're saved. You know, saying that you are a Christian doesn't mean you're saved. Going to worship concerts doesn't mean you're saved. Can you be saved and do those things? Absolutely. But the point is, is that your external measurements don't determine whether you're saved or not. And so this is the thing. You know, our faith is in Christ and Christ sustains us regardless of what happens in the world and what happens in our own lives. We are constantly stumbling, but he's able to save us to the uttermost. Why? Because he's high priest, acting as high priest right now, and he lives forever. So that had to happen. He had to die so that he could become high priest. The law could be changed. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but so that he could be high priest right now is the main point. He's not high priest in the future. And if he's not king right now, then he's not high priest. Then you don't have intercession and therefore no gospel, which is nonsense. Hebrews 8, chapter one or verse 1. Jesus, high priest of a better covenant. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, as in we already have this. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There it is. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. This is so important. Verse 1 says that he's the high priest already. And where is he at? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. What does that mean? That's confirming that Jesus sat at the right hand after his ascension, that he became king, and that he also became priest, and that he has to be king and priest at the same time. It's all the same stuff. Do you see how this is all tying together? Let's continue to Hebrews chapter 9. Redemption through the blood of Christ, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If you believe that Jesus is not king yet, then he doesn't, he also hasn't done his priestly duties. There's no eternal redemption. People who are dying right now, they, they die in their sins. There's no redemption. And so do you see the great cost of believing that Jesus is king in the future? I do. And that was why I had to change my mind on this, because I realized that my belief, even though I wasn't consciously like trying to believe, oh, there's no redemption. That's what it comes with if you believe that Jesus isn't king right now. Now let's move on to chapter 10. And that's verse 12, verse 12 through 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There we go with that timing again. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Wow. That is as clear as you can get. So after he made sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. After that point, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. They all believed that he became king after the ascension and fulfilling the prophecy of him ruling in the midst of his enemies. That's why there are enemies, because the second coming hasn't happened yet. Once the second coming happens, everybody's getting transformed. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. There's no more enemies to rule in the midst of. Makes perfect sense. So, when did Jesus sit at the right hand of, of the Father? 
when he offered sacrifice for sin after after being crucified and he ascended that is when everything came together the cross is the atonement the ascension is when he entered the most holy place then he sits at the right hand he was crowned king that's when the whole daniel 7 thing happened and he also assumed the high priestly role so he is ruling but he's also interceding for us as well which is again that dual picture of his nature as both king and priest. He is ruling and interceding. Both of those things have to happen together. They cannot be separate. And if you try to separate them, like premillennialists do, like dispensationalists do, like postmillennialists do, you inevitably run into a serious problem, which is that he cannot be a priest. Not only that, here's the kicker. When he comes back and death is defeated, there's no more need for a priest because everybody's resurrected, bodies are changed. Why would there be need for a priest at that point in time? So anybody who believes that the future millennial reign of Christ is when Jesus will be king, what you're saying is that he's not priest now and he never will be. That's what you're saying. And you're also diminishing the authority and rule and power that Christ has been given Clearly given, as we can see through so many scriptures, as the supreme leader and authority in the universe. You're diminishing that by saying, well, he's not king yet. And I'm guilty of that too. I believed in premillennial eschatology, but it's wrong. It's wrong. And it doesn't mean that you're wrong or you're a bad person if you believe that. But look at it step by step. We saw the pre-trib rapture last episode. In this episode, we're looking at Jesus being king. If he's king right now, then that's just another reason why pre-tribulationalism, pre-millennialism, dispensationalism, all these types of eschatologies are incorrect. They are not right. Now, authority of Jesus is pretty clear, but I want to review a few verses about that. And if we start in Matthew verses 28 through 18, sorry, chapter 28, verse 18. This is the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that only God can command. So there's another proof text of Jesus being God. Only God can command things, and only God has all authority on heaven and earth. So all authority in, on, in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus already. The Great Commission, he testifies that he already has all authority. Interesting, right? Especially if you think that he is not king yet. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We, we, we talked about this verse previously. It's Peter's sermon. He's been made Lord and Christ, as in king, with authority. Lord is attributed to God only. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then continuing through the next one, this is the preeminence of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. This is what I was talking about. The body of Christ is the church. It's not an institution. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. So let's talk about this for a second. The preeminence of Christ, it's very clear. Christ is preeminent among everything. All authority he's been given is preeminent among everything, but yet somehow he's still not king yet. We have to diminish that. Doesn't make sense, does it? It's not what the Bible says. Now, in the next chapter in Colossians, it reiterates his point that he's above all rule and authority. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10. And, well, let's actually start, start with 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Pretty clear proof text for Jesus as God. For anybody who thinks that it's not, <laughs> that's not the case for some reason. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He's the head of all rule and authority. Now, if you jump to Revelation chapter 1, verses 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, again, there's that preeminence thing, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from, the, from our sins by his blood. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, tell me this. How can you be given all authority... How can you be preeminent over all dominions and powers in the universe? How can you be preeminent firstborn from the dead? How can you be ruler of the kings of the earth? How can you be deemed Lord and command people? And yet you're still not king? Do you see now how, again, the cost of this belief, if you believe that Jesus is not king, and I'm guilty of this, I'll be the first one to admit it. And this is what, what got my conscience, is that, wow, I'm really diminishing the, the preeminence of Christ by believing that he isn't king right now. And it's, again, it's, it's very seductive to believe in a future literal reign of Christ because, you know, you can use the Bible to, to pretty much support any kind of belief system if things are taken out of context. But it's very clear that Jesus has been reigning as king since his ascension. He's been a priest since his ascension so that he could intercede for us. He has to be king and priest at the same time. He's preeminent above all things. He has authority of all things. He's ruler of the kings of the earth. He is king. Jesus is king right now. Not in the future. Not, you know, thousands of years later, but right after his death and resurrection and ascension. That's really important. Now, another topic I want to jump to with this is the idea of Jesus as a spiritual king. And we see this in the Old Testament. This was the original plan that God had. And in fact, if anything, you know, we talked about how dispensationalists, some, some people believe, I won't say dispensational, I'll just say some people believe that the reason Jesus wasn't king the first time is that the Jews rejected him. And so he had to be crucified and then he's going to be king again in the future. That is not true. However, if you look at the reason kings in Israel started, it actually started because of that very same thing. That whole idea of the Jews rejecting God as king 
is actually an Old Testament reality. And it was a thing that God used to create the typology of kingship and what kind of king he is by showing types and shadows of of things that are pointing to him, but also fall greatly short, right? And so if we look at the context of that, and it's a beautiful, beautiful passages about God is a spiritual king, but it's in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. This is the people wanting a king. They want a physical king. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So God wanted to set Israel apart as a nation that didn't have a limited physical man as a king. Every other nation had a physical ruler that was basically an idol to them. And the whole point about Israel being set apart was that they had the living God, the the, the invisible, all-powerful God as their king that they could have a relationship with, that was fighting their battles, that was omnipresent. All of that was about God's plan for his people. And instead of embracing that beautiful plan, what did the Israelites want? They said, no, give us a king so we can be like everybody else. So we can be like the Moabites and the Hittites and the Egyptians and all these people that God basically destroyed with judgment. And obviously, you know, that was the wrong choice, you know, and and if you look at the narrative of that, the first king was who? It was Saul. And if you look at how they describe Saul, Saul was the best looking guy in town. He was literally tall, dark, and handsome. He was the tallest person. He was, you know, very handsome, very good looking. He was the kind of king that people just, oh yeah, that's our king. Because they judged through their looks. And the the idea of judging by your looks, this ties into everything we've been talking about. Judging literally, physically, just what's in front of you. That is what the Bible teaches against over and over and gives you several examples. Saul ended up being a horrible king. But God gave them exactly what they wanted to prove a point. And in the process, using it for the good and creating more shadows and types and bringing David along. So... God used everything for that purpose, and it was already preordained. But the point is, is that the physical kingship wasn't what God intended. God was a spiritual king over them, and then they rejected him. And so he gave them a physical king. If we look in Hosea chapter 13, verse 11, what does it say? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. So do you think God was pleased that they rejected him and wanted some physical, you know, a human king, a flawed, sinful man as a king when they instead could have the invisible almighty God as their king? Of course, that angered God. And he showed them the error of their ways. And he's the one who put the kings and took them down anyway. But the point is, why would God return to the reality of the Old Testament. Ask yourself that. If God was a a spiritual king over the Israelites originally, that was the whole point. He was the one who rescued them. He was the one who fought their battles. He was the one who they would, you know, look to advice for through prophets. If, If that was the reality that God created to set them apart from every other 
fleshly culture in history that always had their idols and their kings, you know, and their men uh, on pedestals, right? If that's the reality that God set them apart from, why would he go back to that? He wouldn't. He would go back to the ultimate reality, which is God is a spiritual king over a spiritual kingdom that has no end, has no limits, cannot be destroyed. He's omnipresent. He's in our hearts. He's in our minds. He's everywhere. He's in us through his Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom. We'll be getting more into that in the future episode too. But I want you to start thinking about that. Stop looking at the Bible through a physical lens and seeing the spiritual reality that's there because it's much greater and much more interesting. God was a spiritual king in the past. They rejected him, and then he became a spiritual king again and forever through Jesus Christ. And of course, at the second coming, God's dwelling place will be with man, and God will be all in all. That'll be the final fulfillment of all things. But until then, it's back to the original plan. Remember, the church, the body of believers, is the new Israel, which is something that is completely against dispensationalism. It's completely in contrary to that. But we'll tackle that in a future episode. But now you know that Jesus is king, that the original plan was for him to be a spiritual king anyway. It's going back to that. So hopefully you have some doubts about dispensationalism. But here are a few more things to kind of settle this in for you. Okay, the descendants of Judah, which is part of Jesus's line, bloodline, were cursed to never rule again. Did you know that? Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring of my hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Verse 26, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land of to which they will long, I'm sorry, let me read this again. Verse 27, but to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, O land, O land, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Did you know that verse? It testifies that none of the descendants of Judah will ever reign on a physical throne again. So this whole idea of the throne of David being a future physical reality in Jerusalem where Jesus is reigning is wrong. It's a a misinterpretation of scripture. It's looking at it again, literally through fleshly eyes, rather than seeing the spiritual reality that's there. No descendants of Judah could ever reign on that throne again because of the word of God. And Jesus was a descendant of Judah. That's what made him the Messiah, but he couldn't reign on a physical throne. Now here's another telling verse too. John 6, verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, this seems to contradict before where people were acknowledging him as king. And he didn't rebuke them. He didn't correct them. And yet now they're trying to take him by force, trying to make him physical king of Jerusalem. And he withdraws. He doesn't let them. What's what's going on here? Well, it's very important because king fundamentally is about obedience. When the Israelites rejected God as king back in Samuel, and they ended up picking Saul as a fleshly king, what were they really doing? They were rejecting obeying God. They were rejecting having faith and instead wanted to satisfy their flesh. They wanted to see a physical king. They wanted to have the glorious empire like other nations had. This is what the apostles thought too when Jesus first came. They thought he was going to come and lead a revolution and conquer militarily rather than seeing that he would conquer through the heart as a king. And so when people recognized him as king, he didn't correct them because those the context of those situations were about obedience. They were seeing the prophecies being fulfilled. But when they're trying to make him a political power and bring him to bring him down essentially, bring bring him down to a fleshly reality, that's when he withdrew himself. He's like, "I'm not going to let you turn me into a physical idol. You're not going to do this again, people, okay?" We're doing this right this time. And this is the whole point. Jesus didn't rebuke him in the past because it was a matter of obedience. They're showing obedience. But when they're trying to, when they're motivated by the wrong things, fleshly things, how things look and appear, political things, that's when he withdrew. So what are some, what are some conclusions from all this? Well, We have now as Christians in the church what Israel used to have, the way God always intended it. But because of Jesus, there's no need for sacrifices, there's no need for any of that. We can have a spiritual king that is with us in an even more intimate way. Think about how different the Israelites were compared to the Egyptians and all these other cultures that they were fighting against by having God as their king, as their principality. All these other places like Egypt, they had principalities too. They had the fallen angels, if you know anything about history. The fallen angels were there consulting and ruling these nations. And God let it happen so that he could demonstrate his power through his own nation. And he set that nation apart so that he could show, you know, what what it would be to be a set-apart nation with God as your king. And what did those people do? Well, most of them rejected that. They wanted to be like the fallen angels nations. So of course you can imagine, you know, God's anger burned at being, at seeing such spiritual immaturity, right? But that was destined to be. Ultimately that had to happen so that there could be a line of kings that would set a type for the future reality in Christ, which again was spiritual. So everything is used by God. Everything is preordained by God to serve a purpose. But ultimately We have to look at things with spiritual eyes, not with physical eyes. Our king is not limited by physical things. He's not limited by a place in time that he has to be. He's not limited by physical clothes, you know, how he appears, how he looks, where he's at. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He's always there with you all the time. He's there as your priest. He's there as your king. He's there as your comforter. That's the kind of king that I want. I don't know about you, 
And it's a, it's a shame because a lot of the people today, especially as I said, including the Jews, they're looking for fleshly people to be their deliverers, to be their saviors, not realizing how, how much that insults God and how much it demotes the role of Messiah. So we shouldn't do that as Christians because we have the full revelation of scripture. And in that sense, Jesus is king right now. And he is also our priest. We have both. God rules spiritually, and that's for our own good. And it's for our own good because if if we had a fleshly king like the Jews had in the Old Testament, they would turn him into an idol and they would forget to have spiritual things. When you are set, when your eyes are satisfied, your heart isn't growing. That's the whole point. There's so many lessons throughout the Bible about not looking with fleshly eyes, but rather seeing with true eyes of the heart. And if you can't, then ask God for true seeing, to be able to see something that you're not seeing because your fleshly eyes are blocking the truth. So many lessons in the Bible about that. And this is one of them, that we shouldn't look for physical realities. Now, again, in the very end, God's dwelling place will be with man. God will be all in all. He'll be in all of us. The triune God will be in a physical presence. And he'll be on earth, and the earth will be renewed. But this idea of a physical throne in Jerusalem, in the current Jerusalem, where Jesus will be reigning while enemies are under his feet are being, you know, there's conflict, there's death, there's sin during the millennial reign, and he's not king right now, this is nonsense. It's not at all in alignment with the Bible. And it costs you some serious problems. So, Notwithstanding, that's that's pretty much what it costs you, is that you look at grace and it relies on the fact that Jesus is priest. But he, in order for him to be priest, he also has to be king. If he's not king, then he's not priest. Then there's no intercession. That right there is something, again, that I hope you take away from this part of the series, that you have to reject this idea that that Jesus isn't king right now, that he's going to be king in the future. What does that mean? Well, now, what about this whole idea that we talked about, that Jesus isn't king because the, Jew, the Jews rejected him? And we talked about this several times throughout this series, about how if the Jews rejected him, then God kind of just changes plans and so on. But we, we mentioned how the cross was predestined. We mentioned how God doesn't change his plans according to mankind's wishes and desires. We talked about how Jesus had to die, but we we didn't mention something when we were going through those chapters in Hebrews, which is that the law had to be changed for Jesus to be the high priest that he is. And there's some great verses that we'll look at, starting with Hebrews 8, chapter 3. For every high, for every high priest is appointed to, uh, to offer gifts, and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So in order for him to be priest, he had to offer something. In plain English, in order for our sins to be forgiven, in order for Jesus to be the intercessor that he is, he had to be sacrificed. It's not that God changed his plans. It's this had to happen. If the Jews would have accepted him as king, as the physical, fleshly interpretation suggests, 
there would have never been a change in the law. We'd still be under the sacrificial system and we would have no grace. We'd be no intercession. That's why, again, you have to reject dispensationalism. It is it, it supports Judaism. It's basically just Judaism wrapped up in a Christian bow, at least in the terms of eschatology. So we have to reject it. But more importantly, he couldn't have been a priest. Let's keep going. Hebrews 8 verse 4. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So the law was here on earth. If he was on here on earth and he was just ministering as a physical fleshly priest rather than in heaven, the law concerns the earth and the people on the earth. There had to be a change in the law. He couldn't have even been a priest because he wasn't uh, Levitical, he's part of the Levitical priesthood to be a high priest. Hebrews 7, chapter 7, verse 12 through 14 makes this a little clearer. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a necessary a change in the law as well. For the one of for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. So, verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Remember again that the people from Judah couldn't be kings. And in connection with that, the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. So Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah. This is <laughs> there's so much in this. If you just are honest with scripture, he was descended from the tribe of Judah. According to the Old Testament, God placed a curse that there would no be, there'd be no more descendants who would be physical kings in Judea from the line of Judah. Okay, so number one, he couldn't be king physically because of that. Number two, he wasn't part of the Levitical priesthood to even be high priest. So from a fleshly perspective, Jesus couldn't be king and he couldn't be priest, high priest. There had to be a change in the law and he had to be in heaven for those things to happen. Do you see how all this thing, all these come together so beautifully? Now in Colossians chapter two, verses 13, 13 through 14, we see why all of this had to happen through his death. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now compare this to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. How, how does all this tie together? Well, Jesus is the inheritor of all things. He's the inheritor of the will. In fact, as we get into the seven seals of Revelation, which is going to be a very future episode several weeks from now, but seven seals was something that people used to use on wills of inheritance. They would have seven seals. And so the seven seals of Revelation, it's talking about a will. The one who inherits all things is Jesus. Why does he inherit? Because he died. And when you die, the will is given to the inheritor. He so happens to be both the one who died and because he resurrected, 
the one who inherited all things. Isn't that beautiful? It's just so, so amazing. But in order for there to be a new priest, a new change of the law, there had to be something offered. There had to be something sacrificed. There had to be a, a change in the priesthood. There had to be somebody that died. A new law. All these things come together through the death and resurrection of Christ. By Jesus dying and resurrecting, he changed the law so that he could become a priest for us and intercede, and so that he could be king. He fulfilled that when he went into heaven and he ascended. Jesus couldn't be a physical king after he resurrected. He couldn't be a physical priest because because of the law, but because of his death, the law was abolished. And so he ascended into heaven to become king and priest and rule in the midst of his enemies, make atonement for sins. And I mean, he made atonement on the cross, but it was all fulfilled when he went in the most holy place, when he ascended, he sat down at the right hand. All those things were fulfilled on the ascension, after the ascension. So the conclusion is that all these things had to happen and they happened a long time ago from our perspective. Jesus is king already. He's not king in the future. He made a sacrifice. He made atonement for sins. The law was changed. He became priest because he lives forever. He's always going to be the priest from now on. He's always the high priest and he's always king. So any idea or theory in end times that suggests that Jesus isn't king right now should be rejected. Remember what Corinthians says about the last enemy being death. The last enemy to be to, to be defeated is death. When does that happen? That happens at the resurrection. When does the resurrection happen? When Jesus returns. All the dead will be resurrected. All the living will be transformed. We're all going to be caught up by the angels in the air to meet the Lord. All of that's going to happen at the second coming. Death will be defeated. If that's the final enemy, then he is already ruling amidst his enemies at the present time. So that means that we are in the millennium. So a couple final thoughts to wrap this up. Pre and post millennialism and dispensationalism says that Jesus will be king at some point in the future, but in doing so, they remove his high priestly role and diminish his kingly stature. They unintentionally remove his intercession and therefore unintentionally remove the gospel. It's an inconsistent position. Now, I know anybody who believes in a future millennial kingdom doesn't think that they're removing the gospel. They're not trying to. But this is exactly what happens. This is the logical conclusion based on everything we've covered, what scripture says, what Jesus himself has testified about himself, what the apostles testified, that he is king right now. If you reject that idea then he cannot be priest. There's no intercession. There's no gospel. There's no grace. We're still under the old law. And that's a terrible thing because nobody can make it if we're under the old law. It doesn't doesn't align with scripture at all to believe in a future millennial reign of Christ where he's physically reigning on on the throne uh, throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years or a long period of time, whatever you happen to believe doesn't, change the fact that this is not a, a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. God always wanted a spiritual reign. 
a future millennial kingdom after Christ returns, where there's sin and death, and he's ruling over presumably people who survived God's wrath. I mean, I don't even know who he would be ruling over. What enemies would be he be ruling over? That's just not biblical. It doesn't make any sense. And that's why I had to reject on my own end, well, I had to reject premillennialism. I believed in premillennialism, but once I really started to look into it, I realized that there are some glaring holes in that eschatology, and that's one of them. How could there be sin and death during Jesus' reign? How can Jesus not be king right now based on everything the scripture tells us? It doesn't make any sense. We know that the last enemy to be defeated is death, and that happens at the second coming, Jesus has to be king and priest at the same time. Both of those roles, both priest and king, in various scriptures that we looked at, happen at the time, at the same time, and at the time that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. When did he do that? When he entered the most holy place after his ascension, when he finished everything, when he presented before the Ancient of Days. All those things happened after the ascension, okay, which was a long time ago. long time ago by our standards. So therefore, the millennial kingdom cannot be in the future. Jesus is king right now, and hallelujah that he is, because that means that the gospel is alive and well. So I hope this has helped you. I hope this has been a blessing. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to me, tutor at danceoflife.com. Let me know what you think about today's episode. But otherwise, I hope it was a blessing. We're going to be getting really deep into some future episodes Step-by-step, I'm going to hopefully arm you with scripture and with history so that you can be armed for the future because the world is crazy. The world is crazy and it's only getting crazier. And as we get into some more episodes about the third temple, about the church, about the new Israel, about all these things that are happening in the world, it's going to get only crazier. And we have to have discernment, people. We have to have discernment. And I, I pray that God opens your eyes through this and other education. I hope that you consult scripture. I hope it's inspired you to study maybe a little deeper. Because like I said, I used to believe premillennialism. And I love studying the Bible, but I was wrong. I was wrong, and I admit that. And I'm glad that God opened my eyes so that I wouldn't deceive myself and I wouldn't deceive other people. And again, not saying that people who believe this or teach are trying to deceive anybody, but doesn't change the fact that this is wrong eschatology and we have to reject it for many important reasons not just because it's wrong but what it says about christ and what it says is that it diminishes his role and it says that he's not priest to intercede for us which i reject both of those so i hope you do too and we'll see you in the next episode until then god bless and have a great rest of your day 